Howdy folks, welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. I'm your host, Kirsten Nutz, and in today's episode, we will dive into nature photography of the extremist kind. We're not talking flowers and squirrels on sticks here. Oh no, my friends, we're talking volcanoes, tornadoes, and frozen lakes right after this. Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 161. But hold on, as per usual, if you enjoy this podcast, please join the Camera Shake community over on camerashakepodcast.com so that you're the first ones to know when we've got some exciting news for you. You'll find the link in the description, or if you're watching on YouTube, it'll be right down here somewhere on the screen, unless I forget to put it there, which does happen sometimes. But without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, extreme nature photographer, photojournalist, the man with an affinity for Stranger Things and a love for M&Ms. Give it up for Mike Mesrell the second. Mike, man, how are you? Good, man. Thanks so much for having me along. It's, it's an absolute pleasure, man. I'm, I'm so looking forward to talking volcanoes and tornadoes and the whole, the whole thing. Are you sure you don't want to talk about like puppies and sticks and squirrels? Because we can do that too, man. We can, we can swing over that way. <laughs> What's that? I mean, okay. I have to say that this, this was really something that surprised me when I, you know, when I looked at your website, for example, because, and you know, I know you as basically an extreme nature photographer, you know, lava streams and, you know, volcano eruptions and all the rest of it. But when I looked at your website, I, I realized you actually shoot a whole lot of other stuff too. Like, you know, uh, concerts, for example, and your concert photography rocks, dude. So, oh, thanks, man. You know, um, and uh, and and I think you mentioned weddings as well and stuff like that. So it's it's incredible, uh, the you know the overall variety of stuff that that you shoot. Yeah, you know, when when you say extreme nature, everybody's like, "Oh man, isn't that dangerous?" I'm, I'm more worried about the weddings. <laughs> that's <laughs> oh that's God, what scares yeah. me the most. Um, but no, yeah, you know, I I, I pretty much photograph everything. Um, you point a camera at. You know, my work's been getting known over the years for more of the volcanoes the severe weather, um, the landscape work. But when I'm not doing that, I, I spend time shooting, you know, concerts, professional sports, uh, commercial work. Pretty much the only thing I don't photograph is nudes and babies. And it's, uh, I've been there before. And that is just one of those things where I'm like, you know, hey, this isn't for me. And uh, let me just stick with what I enjoy. So, uh, but I enjoy photography as a whole. So anything you can kind of create a, a a moment or capture a moment or create an image out of I enjoy so yeah it's uh it's pretty diverse and it keeps me on my toes and it's uh you know something that allows me to not get burned out with just one particular subject matter yeah I love that it's and I, I completely agree with you it's you know it's really interesting sometimes to to dive into something that you're not really that accustomed to you know um, I find that with street photography. Um, I, I love street photography. I'm not very good at it, and I'm not very experienced in it either. I just like to get better at it. So I put myself into these situations, you know, where I'm not necessarily the most comfortable in, you know, like street photography, as yeah. in like, you know, approaching people and stuff. It really, you know, it's it's hard to get over that over that you know hurdle. But once you get there, it's beautiful, you know, and that's the thing. Yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of photography though requires you. In order to be good at it, right, it requires you to step outside your comfort zone to put yourself in that uncomfortable area. Because if you go in there and you know you have, you know, it's good to have confidence, right? But I think there's such a thing as having too much confidence. 
And uh, if you're a little uncomfortable every time you shoot, I think that helps you kind of tap into your inner creativity to think outside the box, to see perspectives that, you know, maybe you wouldn't see if you went in there too comfortable. So, you know, getting, we'll, we'll not dive down the storm rabbit hole yet, but like with storms, I've been doing that for years. And I still, every single time I go out, I get nervous a little bit and I get uncomfortable. And I think that helps me keep me on my toes with looking at all the tri- different parts of the storms to create images with. So I think it's a good a good thing to have. So It's interesting you say that because I feel exactly the same thing about performing live. You know, as, as many of our listeners and viewers know, in a past life, you know, I used to be a musician. Um, well, I say I used to be, but I'm still a musician, really. But, you know, I used to perform a lot, let's put it this way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's this, this thing where, you know, people think like, okay, if you do that professionally, it must be like totally second nature every time you walk out on stage and, you know, it must just feel like, you know, like you playing in your living room. But the reality is, you know, I've always been nervous going on stage. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, you need that little bit of, of nervousness to keep you on your toes, to keep you switched on and alert, you know, to what's yeah. going on around you. Um, and because you've got to, when you're on stage, you know, you've got, you're playing with other musicians, you got to listen, you know, stuff's happening on stage, lights are going off, you know, people are jumping around. It's, you know, it's pretty, it's a pretty frantic, crazy situation. And yet you still have to perform, you know, and play the right notes most of the time. Otherwise, you know what they say, if you play the wrong <laughs> notes, play it again, pretend it's jazz, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Not that I ever played any jazz yeah. games, really. But it's this thing where, you know, a little bit of nerves really, really helps. And I used to think, you know, the day I'm not nervous when I go on stage is probably the day I should quit. <laughs> exactly. No, hundred percent. You know, I kind of have, I have two things kind of very similar to that. One is the day that I pick up my camera and I feel like I'm going to work is the day I should put down my camera and take a breather. Um, and then the other one is the day that I feel like I'm out there shooting and just bored is also the day that I should put down the camera and just take it, take a step back. Um, because you have to be on your toes no matter what you're doing. Um, I think that keeps you lively, that keeps you energetic, that keeps you focused, that keeps you, you know, creative, keeps the gears turning. Um, you don't plateau, right? Um, you, you don't find yourself out there going, well, I know what to shoot. This is the shot versus, well, I have an idea of what to shoot, but let me see what is going to happen, what I can work with and what else I can create. So. And I know that you, when you first started shooting, you started shooting on film back in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, I still have that camera. It's an old Yashica MG1 camera and it's got the little silver crank on top, the <laughs> big old metal cable release you plug in and you can lock down. And uh, yeah, I started on film and, and uh, I never imagined my life being here, to be completely honest with you. Like uh, photography was nothing I ever planned to make a career out of. It's nothing that I ever even planned to make a hobby out of. Um I got that camera. My parent, my parents love the story. Uh, you know, when when you turn sixteen here in the states, uh, you know you you expect to start you know driving a car, you know, getting a driver's license or a permit or you know maybe a cheap banged up car for you know free to learn on. And uh, my birthday, uh, my sixteenth sixteenth birthday, I believe it was, was um, nothing happened, and it was like. Three quarters of the way through the day, my mother, who's this like little five foot nothing Italian woman, came out and she's like, "What do you want for dinner?" And I was like, "Well, you know, let's uh, let's um, let's maybe go out. Let's go out. It's my birthday, you know." And her eyes lit up, and she completely like made this U turn and just shuffled into the bedroom. You heard the bedroom shut, and I was like, "Cool, they forgot my birthday." <laughs> and oh, uh, 
a few minutes later, they come out. My mom, my dad come out with this with this black leather bag, and this black leather bag um, just kind of you know looked beat up and worn down. And I was like, oh, happy birthday! And I was like, what in the world is this? Unfolded it or uh, like took the the casing top part off and it's all falling apart and had this green foam that just looked like it had been through like you know World War II and and uh, inside was the Yashica camera. I was like, cool. Like, and this is back before like we ever had like any sort of like iPhone camera or anything like that. And I was like, cool, this is a camera. And my dad said something at that moment that changed my life and my career. And and he said that um, this is the camera I had while I was in the Air Force. I never learned how to use it. So maybe you will. And my dad and I have always been, you know, a little bit competitive. And uh, so my mind immediately went to, well, I don't care about photography, but I care about learning something that he can never do. And it just snowballed from there. Like I found myself enjoying it, shooting, you know, rolls and rolls and rolls of film, having no clue what I was doing and writing all my settings down on a little yellow notepad and saving up my allowance and going and getting the film developed at the drugstore and comparing and being like, okay, well, now I need to go to the library and check out a book about this so I can not screw this part up. And uh, yeah, I know that was kind of going down a rabbit hole there, but like it, it all started with film and, and learning that way. So yeah, and here we are now, and I could take, you know, seven, 8,000 photos on a memory card. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, exactly. It's crazy. You know, it's, it's, it's really funny you, you saying that. It's, uh, I, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, um, my so uh, again talked about this many times on this podcast but i'm a third generation photographer my grandmother started the whole thing in 1938 and then my dad um used to uh, develop black and white film in our bathroom right so we, we back in the day we used to live in an apartment and basically you know when, when he was developing his his black and white film literally the bathroom door was shut and it was like a red light <laughs> like no entry you know, oh, <laughs> shit. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but so as a consequence, you know, I was really not into photography because it was just no. always that. I mean, there were cameras around and film and all that kind of stuff. And you know, and uh, and uh, as a kid, I my parents gave me this uh, for some birthday. They gave me this uh, Kodamatic. So Kodak had come out with. They were trying to uh, compete with with uh, Polaroid, and they came out with this instant film camera, right? Called the Kodamatic, and it was flipping huge it was like a brick right okay um, but then they lost like a year or two later they lost um a legal case like a copyright infringement case and they had to basically oh, no. stop doing that so immediately you couldn't get any films for this camera anymore and you know and the whole thing was basically obsolete at that point and so i thought oh well screw this you know um but then because everybody else was shooting stills and it was the 80s and i'm like okay well you know I love Steven Spielberg movies and all the rest of it. I thought, you know, Star Wars and like Back to the Future and all that. I kind of thought, I want to make movies. That's what I want to make. Screw these stills images. I want <laughs> to see stuff moving in those. And so, you know, and, and at that time, um, sort of home video cameras became available, you know. And so yeah. and uh, and so I literally, I, I saved up all my birthday money and every last penny um, I could find. And uh, and I invested all of it into a video camera, like a video eight. So you're walking camera. around with one of the big old bricks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. Yeah, literally. And man, it was this thing was like surgically attached to my shoulder and my my eye socket. I filmed everything, the most boring stuff. Like I don't know, you know, 
my parents drinking coffee. <laughs> Literally. And then, you know, eventually I, I started making little movies. So I started writing little scripts and then I was really into practical effects. So I made lots of practical effects and I had lots of Star Wars toys, you know, and I like rejigged all the spaceships and turned them into new spaceships and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, That's and then, awesome, man. That's... Yeah, and it was super fun. Do you still have these? Uh, yeah. So funny enough, you know, my mom actually found a box um, of those, of like a whole box of videotapes um, in the basement um, only about maybe a year ago. And she, she sent oh, them wow. over to me to England. Yeah. And it's incredible. I mean, it's funny watching it because some of it has deteriorated because yeah. it was magnetic tape, you know, and they're like, yeah, they're probably like ugh, 25 years old or something, 30 years old. Um, but um, some of it was actually in remarkable conditions still. And oh, that's awesome. And, you know, I mean, there are some interesting, you know, it's, it's funny. And it's the same with, with photographs. Of course, you know, sometimes you look at, you know, you look at old photographs and you think like, wow, you know, these people aren't around anymore, for example. And it's really, it just yeah. goes to show that really what's happening is we're really freezing a moment in time, you know, by when we're taking photographs. But they were like, um, there were snippets of my dad just doing like, I don't know, gardening work or something like, or playing tennis or like something completely unremarkable. But you know, my dad's, my dad passed away in 2013. So it's, it's amazing to all of a sudden find that footage and then look at that and go, whoa, look at that. He was younger then than I am now. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it's just crazy. And it's, it's cool because it's, it's, you know, I think with photography, you know, a lot of us, we, we, we have our niches, right? We have our things that we're really passionate about, but we also have the stuff that we just take pictures of, right? We just uh, yeah. take a picture here and take a picture there. You know, like I, you know, in the past few years, I've gotten over time lapse. I like, I've gotten into time lapsing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I time lapse everything now. So, like, my girlfriend, my parents, and I were coloring Easter eggs this last Easter, and I'm like screaming at everybody, stop, don't touch the eggs yet. I'm coming out with my tripod, my camera. I'm like, well, let's just time lapse us with all this chaos of doing mm-hmm. the eggs. And, you know, it's like, you know, what am I ever going to do with that? I'm not going to put that up and, you know, win a Vimeo award for it, you know, but it's something that, you know, 10, 20 years from now, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, those fun little moments, you know, if it wasn't for photography or, or whatever, videography or whatnot, we we would probably honestly forget those moments ever happened, yeah. right? Exactly. And they, they help tell stories, no matter how big or small or insignificant or significant they may be. Especially those, you know, insignificant moments or insignificant in inverted commas, really. Yeah. You know, they tend to fade. They're the first things that fade from memory because we remember like the big moments, you know, the the, yeah. the the birthdays and the like festivities and the big events that are happening. But the little, just those little tiny little insignificant, insignificant things, you know, are the first ones to fade. And that's why like, you know, photography and video is just, we're so blessed, you know, now that we can record everything in our phones even. You know, so yeah. So I sometimes think like my, you know, my daughter, my youngest daughter is 12 and I've got, I don't know. I mean, you know, I've got terabytes of video yeah. clips and photos of her growing up, which is amazing, yeah. you know? Yeah. And compared to like what our parents had of us, you know, it's shoe boxes full of, yeah. you know, a, a picture here, a picture there, Yeah, you know, it, it, and it's a, it's a double-edged sword though, I feel like, because the way the accessibility of videography, you know, the stills, you know, every everything is, you know, right here, right? I feel like we often forget to put that down and just take in the moment too, you know? Yes. Um, right. It's it's very much a, a double-edged sword being, being a, a photographer in general too, because it's like, you know, for example, we went to Antarctica back in 
uh, January of this year. And my girlfriend came along with me. She's not, not a photographer. And, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I got to get this angle of this Gen 2 penguin. I got to get this angle of this iceberg. I got to do this. I got it. She's just walking in the room. She's smiling going, mm-hmm, I know where this is going. And, you know, like I'm sitting here and I'm just so focused on trying to create these moments. And she's got her head on like the Zodiac and just kind of just looking and taking in. And I'm like, kind of wish I could do that. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I need, I need to put the camera down. And I think we forget that, you know. I think that's something that with the ease of access to, you know, whether it's an iPhone or a camera, a digital camera these days, we forget to do that. So it's yeah. such a double-edged sword. Exactly. And sometimes it just takes another person to remind us of that. You know, my 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 12-year-old daughter really is my conscience in that respect. You know, she yeah. she often says to me, you know, just enjoy the moment, you know, put the camera down when, you know, we're yeah. on holiday or something and it's, yeah. uh, you know, a beautiful sunset or something like that. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know. And she's like, yeah. oh, just look at it. It's so beautiful. And it's it's true, you know. I have a um, a quick story I'll share with you that I always share with all my workshop students uh, about kind of what we're talking about. So in 2000, and I believe it was 2015 now, I think it was, or 2015, 2014, I ran my first workshop. And uh, I was co-guiding with another uh, photographer friend of mine at the time. And we always put on our workshop pages like, hey, you know, you must be willing to hike X amount of miles. You, you need to be able to hike up the sand dunes. And so we had this guy show up on the first day. Um, and uh, uh, George knows I've, I've told the story before, so he's cool with me telling it. But his name is George. Um, very wealthy man. Flew his own private plane into Death Valley. And he shows up and he's literally like with a cane, like one step forward, one step forward. And I was like, oh, no. I was like, oh, no, like, this is not good because our first hike is, you know, uh, over, you know, a kilometer and a half out to the sand dunes in Death Valley. And so uh, long story short with that, we talked to him and I I came down to like, okay, I'll go with George and James will take the rest of the group out. So we go out there and like the rest of the group just takes off and George and I are moving a snail's pace and we the goal was to get into the sand dunes to get a sunset and we're, 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 we're moving pretty, <laughs> pretty slowly. And so we get to the first stand dune, and sunset's already coming in hot and it's looking like it's going to be a burner. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, like well, there's no way we're making it to where we wanted to make it. So I, uh, I quickly helped George up, uh, the stand dune. I, I take my bag up, his bag up, go literally. I just met him. Um, you know, I had to help him up and here I am with just, you know, this guy I have known for just a few hours and, now, if you if you ever thought about how you need to help somebody up a sand dune, it's 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 you plant your hands on the butt, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I was like, thought I was like, George, I'm gonna push you from behind, buddy. And so we got him up to the top of the the dune, and uh, I said, all right, let's you know, sunset's looking pretty good, like the colors are coming in already. And I was like, let's let's get your camera out. And he goes, no. And I was like, kind of shocked because I was like, no. I was like, oh, oh my god, is he okay? And he goes, okay. So I get my camera out and I compose a quick shot and, and we're, we're talking like sunset was on fire at this point. And I told him, I was like, all right, George, this is the shot. And he's like, that's a beautiful shot. And I was like, let's get your camera out. I don't know how long the light's going to last. And he goes, no, I was like, seriously concerned. I was like, this guy is like, is he about to like have a medical issue? <laughs> and uh, he goes, you look confused. I was like, with all due respect, yes. And he goes, may I, may I ask why? I was like, well, uh, you signed up for a photography workshop. You literally hiked all the way out here to the sand dunes. We have a beautiful sunset coming in and you won't pull out your camera. 
And he started laughing. He goes, that's a good reason to be confused. And I was like, yeah, okay. So I'm glad you get that. He goes, now let me tell you something. And what he told me next has stuck with me through all my adventures. Um, he goes, Mike, I think he was like 81 at the time. Or something like that. It looks to say he's 81. I, th- I think it was low 80s. And he's like, I'm 81. I've been around the world three different times. Um, and I, uh, I promise you, I understand like that you are a good teacher, but you are, but what do you say? He said, um, ever since I was a young boy, I've always wanted to come to this spot out here and to watch the sunset. And no matter how good of a teacher you are, you will never be able to, um, or the, the photo that you teach me to capture will never be as good as the one that I capture with my own eyes. And that just, yeah. so he sat there and just watched the sunset. I, of course, went in shock, <laughs> but uh, uh, he literally just did not pull his camera out and he watched the sunset. And so the moral of that story is we get so consumed by, hey, we need to capture or create an image. And really, that's, that's okay to do that. But we also have to take in what we're shooting. And uh, the first time I ever saw the Northern Lights, I uh, I was going through a pretty rough time in life. Didn't you know? Wasn't in a good mood. Um, Northern Lights came out, and I shot probably the first five hours without actually looking at them. And then George popped in my head, and I laid down on a rock for about fifteen minutes. This was a nice one, just staring up at the sky. I cheated a little bit. I let the camera time lapse, but I uh, was laying in there and watching the the lights for about fifteen minutes. And then I went back to shooting, and we had we got so lucky with the northern lights from sunset pretty much to sunrise um but what i remember from that entire night is that 15 minutes of laying on that rock feeling the breeze watching the lights dance above just taking in the surroundings so yeah we we have to not be so consumed by creating an image but yet taking it in as well because you know when it all comes down to it do you really want to witness and experience that moment through a viewfinder exactly What's what drew you to um, sort of extreme nature photography? Like what what drew you I to these down a, extreme conditions? I fell down a flight of stairs as a kid. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you know, for me, it's um, I think it's the elusivity of it, if that's even a word, elusiveness of it. Yeah, uh, you know, I've always been just completely. Um, consumed, completely fascinated by this planet that we live on. Like for me, living in a city is not for me. It drives me crazy. Traffic drives me crazy. Like getting out into, it doesn't matter if it's the plains of West Texas or the canyons of New Mexico or the mountains of Canada, whatever. Just getting out into that kind of environment, just it, it does something to my soul. So I've uh, always been that way but like i've always been fascinated too about the power of nature so you know you look above our heads right even go outside it's a blue sky there is so much energy up there there is so much that is happening above our heads with wind with moisture with thermodynamics all that stuff that to me when something comes from that that isn't man-made that's fascinating and i want to capture that So with storms, for example, seeing something that just is literally formed out of nothing, quote unquote, um, above our heads, and you have that much energy, I want to document that. 
Um, I want to create a photo of that. And also, you know, a lot of people find that scary, right? And they see these severe storms, they see tornadoes, and they, you know, most people, probably the smarter ones, run into some sort of shelter. But there's a beauty to it. And I want to tell that story. Um, at the same time, too, you know, you go to Yosemite, uh, Half Dome is always going to be there. You go to Iceland, Skogafoss Waterfall is always going to be there. With storms, you are photographing something that is literally there for a mere few hours, maybe, if you're lucky, and then it vanishes into thin air. And you're photographing something that no one else will ever get to photograph um, in, in that particular moment, right? And, uh, you know, with volcanoes, it's uh, kind of the same kind of different, but it's also like photographing and telling the story of how this world was created, right? You get to see these volcanoes erupt and you get to see the power that's beneath our feet and you get to see the way that you know for example documenting the Kilauea eruption in 2018 the way that the Hawaiian islands are actually growing and because of that event uh it's it's um intriguing it's humbling uh it's beautiful so there, there's so many different things to go into why and how I got into that how much preparation goes into those kind of expeditions, you know, if you're, if you're going to, if you're chasing a storm in Tornado Alley, for example, or you're going to photograph a volcano, like a, a, a volcano that's about to erupt, how much preparation goes into that? Yeah, you know, um, so one, for both subject matters, it doesn't just, it's not just, oh, hey, I'm going to go to a volcano or, hey, I'm going to go chase a tornado. So my background was originally in atmospheric science. Uh, so, you know, I studied meteorology through college. I didn't major in meteorology, but studied through different classes. I originally was majoring in it and then changed my major. Um, I also went out for about four or five years with the mentor, uh, who had been chasing since like the sixties. And he taught me kind of the ropes of chasing and everything that you couldn't learn through a textbook, essentially. Um, Volcanoes, same thing. Uh, went out with a, a couple of mentors for the first few times. Um, each volcano is very, very different. When, whether you're talking like a shield volcano, stratocone volcano, they have different um, aspects to them that you need to be aware of. So going out with people that uh, have experience is the biggest thing there. Um, but as far as like preparation, you know, for storms, we have a storm season here in, in Tornado Alley. Uh, pretty much starts mid-March, goes all the way through mid-July. Uh, so, you know, a lot of it is just kind of being very, very, um, attentive to the forecast and what's going on and being ready to, to go if you can. Um, for example, I have a flight booked to Denver, Colorado for tomorrow morning because there's a potential for some severe weather out there. I don't know if I'll go or not, but it's booked. The bag's ready to go. So if I look at the forecast tonight, you know, I'm going to say goodbye to, to, the pups and the girlfriend and i'm going to leave for a day to go out there and go chase um with volcanoes you have to be very uh, ready to go and on your toes at all times because there's you know usually a little bit of uh indicator with like earthquake forms or tremors or something like that that will kind of hint to you that something's brewing like for example kilauea on hawaii um you can monitor like the shallowness of the tremors and and the earthquakes that are happening and get a good idea of where the magma is and you know are we approaching a possible eruption um so i usually have a bag ready to go for that so if um if 
Kilauea erupts, I can hopefully be on one of the next two planes out of Dallas to get over there. Um, volcanoes like Iceland and uh, down in Guatemala, uh, you know, it's always monitoring trends. You know, Guatemala, like the Fuego volcano that I, I spent a lot of time on, that erupts pretty consistently. Um, so that one, it's almost like you can go down there. As long as it's not the rainy season, you can go down there and, and witness some uh, eruptions. But um, Iceland, you know, their volcanoes, it's once again monitoring all the trends and paying attention to what the, um, you know, maybe the search and rescue teams are, are saying over there or, you know, what the volcanologists are saying and just being ready to go. So um, luckily I have a pretty good support you know team here with you know family and and my girlfriend so they know like hey something happens you know it's it we're we're on the road or i'm on the road um so yeah it, those are events that you have to just kind of really be on your toes for um and that's that that can make or break you getting to to photograph it how do you balance um i would say so you know when you're there yeah. how do you balance this the need to get the shot with your personal safety like where's where's that balance usually um it's a fine line it, it, it's a fine line like you know it, it i i love i love my life uh so i don't ever want to not come back from something right um but when you look at the reality of what you know you're dealing with in particular tornadoes and volcanoes like these, these are natural disasters natural events that, that kill people um so you have to go out there with the willingness to accept that this could be your your moment right um no matter how much you study no matter how much you prepare no matter how much you think you know nature is still in charge right um, you know i've been chasing storms for almost 23 years now i believe and there are times that I go out there, um, and I mentioned this earlier, like I'm nervous every chase because I know what what the storms can do. Um, and I also know how insignificant I am in relation to those storms. Um, but I have seen things with storms where everything you learn in, a, in your atmospheric science books goes out the window and nature is like, here, watch this, hold my beer. And all of a sudden, you're just like, wow, that, that was not supposed to happen. And here we are. And you have to be willing to adapt. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, I'm more conservative, especially now as I get older. I'm more like, okay, let me start further back and work my way closer. As opposed to, you know, 15 years ago, it was just like full send, you know. Um, but, yeah, now, especially, you know, I feel very confident around storms. Like I said, still nervous at times. Uh, well, every time, but still you know, I, I feel pretty good with knowing the dynamics of a storm. Volcanoes, I've only been documenting volcanoes now for about eight years. And so there's still a lot to learn. So I am very, very cautious on approaching them. You know, it's not just like, for example, with Fuego, it's not just, hey, we get to base camp and then you run across the valley and you get onto the ridge of Fuego. You know, I usually get to base camp, spend a day there, watch the activity of Fuego, watch what's going on. Is it doing anything that looks, um, you know, looks different than what I've seen in the past? You know, are are the plumes doing this? The explosions doing this? You know, what? You know, has there been any shifting in the direction of uh, the eruption? As far as like maybe uh, the crater has been blocked on one in one area. You know, like you're you're always 
looking before you go. It's not just, oh, let me just go run up to this volcano. So yeah, there's there's um, there's definitely some uh, some things to take into consideration there for safety reasons and for photo reasons. And also, I mean, you know, safety also not not only sort of personal safety, but also safety in terms of equipment and gear. So I'm thinking like you know, thinking of, about the sort of hazards of like let's say you know shooting a tornado. Um, you know, you've got sand, dust flying around, you know, at like high <laughs> yeah. speeds, you know, so that that can uh, wreak havoc with your equipment. And you know, when you're when you're looking at a, a volcano erupting, I mean, it can melt all of your stuff. You know? So yeah, it's like, how, it's, how, do you, uh, how do you prep for that? Uh, you don't, you really don't, you know, it's, right. I, I used to be like, oh, I need to have my blower with me and blow every little piece of debris off my front element. Or I used to put on a, a rain coat for my camera. Um, you know, to be completely honest, now the weather ceiling on the cameras is fantastic. Uh, um, and you know my tripods i use and abuse them uh so ben road tripods is who who i use and they're one of my sponsors and they always get a kick out of when i email them like hey <laughs> i melted this tripod or I broke this tripod uh you know the, the storm blew this one over um and then nikon i've done some work with them for their campaigns and and when you know they send me the gear they're like put it through the ringer. This is why we're giving it to you. See what, you know, I'm like, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> you know, like, all right. Um, so yeah, you know, you have to put yourself where the images are, right? So sometimes that requires getting dirty. Sometimes that requires getting sandblasted. Sometimes that requires, you know, being completely uncomfortable and worrying about like, is this going to affect my gear? But you kind of have to weigh that of, okay, is this photo worth it? Or do I go and miss the photo and get something a little less uh, interesting or powerful or impactful and protect the gear? And for me, it's like the gear can replace, be replaced the moment can't. Okay. So yeah, my insurance company probably doesn't agree with that, that idea, <laughs> but that's, that's kind of my approach on it. What's the worst damage you've ever had on gear? Oh man, I uh, so I had two D850s out with me uh, about two years ago in Arizona for monsoon season, uh, and somehow, some way, I don't know how I did. I think I know the storm that did it, but I'm I'm usually not afraid to change lenses out in the field. Um, but I pitted both sensors from getting sandblasted. So when I changed when I changed uh, lenses, somehow we just got blasted um, and. I uh, I thought it was just I thought it was just sensor dust, right? And I was like, oh, so I was swabbing it overnight, and like I I went through like fifty different swabs, and I was like, I cannot get these things off. So I took it to one of the local camera shops, and the guy was like, yeah, you you pitted your sensors, like literally, like these sensors are destroyed. Um, so luckily, insurance was taking care of that. Um, but yeah, so that's happened. Um, I didn't, I didn't, uh, it's not camera gear, but when I was documenting the Iceland, uh, volcano two years ago, I melted my pants, uh, was not paying attention. I had, I had Gore-Tex, uh, pants on and I, I like to be close. So I would get as close as I could for a couple seconds. Cause that's all you could handle. And then I'd back off or I'd get close and back off. And I didn't realize until I got in the car with my buddy and he's like, what's wrong with your pants? And and I I'll I'll have to email you the 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 video if you want to see it or not. But uh, they they turned crunchy, like they were literally melted, 
And so uh, I tagged, they were marmot pants. And so I, I, I tagged them and I said, hey guys, just FYI, I love your pants, but they're, uh, they're not lava proof. And uh, their social media team got back to me and they're like, hey, what pants were those? What size? What's your mailing address? And uh, they mailed me a brand new pair with a little note that said, please note, still not lava proof. <laughs> so like, that's, that's, I appreciate that. That's nice. Thank you. They're like $400 pants. So I appreciate that. But yeah, so melted. Uh, I had a tripod uh, get stuck in the lava accidentally, um, as well. And uh, Benro, they they love that photo because it's literally. I'll see if I can maybe pull it up and show you. It's literally like this tripod just sitting in the middle of the lava flows in Iceland, and I wasn't paying attention. And uh, luckily, I was able to get the camera off, but the uh, the tripod died a horrible death. Um, so yeah, there's, there's been a few things that have happened out there. Oh, they, they got such a kick out of it. And, and, uh, you know, now there's the running joke of please don't destroy this tripod when I try out a new tripod for them or something like that. <laughs> What's been your, the most memorable experience? Oh man, that's actually asking me like pick a favorite kid. Um, feeling and experiencing nature, right? And so I try to do that with every single outing, whether I'm shooting landscapes, whether I'm shooting storms, tornadoes, Milky Way, whatever it may be. Um, but there was uh, uh, the first time I went to to Guatemala to document the Fuego Volcano. It was <laughs> everything that could go wrong would went wrong. Um we were supposed to be, uh, well, we were, we were given access to uh, the only farm road that allows you to drive almost to the top of Fuego. So we were given access to that because we had probably about 80 pounds of, of camera, camera gear, food, water, all that stuff each to take up there. Uh, well, the vehicle that we took in the super steep road, super steep road, you're, you're, you know, the whole road is like 11, 12, 13,000 feet in elevation. Uh, the, uh, the vehicle did not appreciate that road. So, uh, it broke down about halfway up. And so we had to lug each of us about, you know, 70, 80 pounds of gear all the way up the rest of the hike, which is about six miles. And I think it was still like almost 2000 feet of elevation gain. Um, it was the worst experience ever. Uh, you're sucking wind through a straw, you get all this gear. It's super steep. You're on a dirt road, so literally it's like walking in sand dunes. Like, you know, you're sliding around everywhere. Um, there were multiple times where, and it was dark, by the way. It was not, it was not like daylight anymore. Uh, there were multiple times where I was just like, I'm laying my sleeping bag down. I am sleeping at a 45 degree angle, and we're just going to go back down in the morning and just not even do this. But you can hear where we were. You couldn't see Fuego, but you could hear Fuego. And you just hear these massive, sounds like bombs going off. And that just kind of kept me going. And it sucked. I mean, it, every part of that hike was horrible. But I will never forget, there's a part where you're about 15 minutes from base camp, where you finally round this corner and you can see Fuego. And as soon as we rounded that corner, one of the biggest explosions that it had the entire time we were there happened. And you just see these orange projectiles going up, you know, a mile into the sky and then coming down and crashing. And you can hear it all. And 
you can just you know feel the volcano and at that point like every little bit of energy was just like put into a ball and just shot through my body and we just <laughs> just were able to push through and, and finally got to base camp and i remember just plopping down the, the gear pulling out the camera and just starting to shoot because it was such a cool moment and, and fuego fuego i mentioned earlier is always erupting but it's not necessarily in, in an eruptive phase and that night it went into a full-on eruptive phase um so you know we shot some of the biz- biggest explosions that have been on fuego in years at that time um so yeah for me that was a really really cool moment i don't know if i have a favorite moment but like that is is probably up there top three because we busted our butts to get to that spot and like i said there are multiple times where it takes a lot for me to tap out but there are multiple times where i'm like i'm sleeping at a 45 degree angle <laughs> we'll tuck and roll our way down the side of the mountain in the morning and just call it a day so yeah, that was a pretty good one. That reminds me of um, years ago, I went to the Canary Islands, um, to the island mm-hmm. of Fuerteventura. And it's, Fuerteventura is pretty much a desert island, right? And okay. um, it's there's really nothing. And I think every palm tree that's on an island has been imported or something like that. It's it's just a rock, right? A rock in the sand. Um, yeah. And we were staying in the south part of the, southern part of the, of the island. Um, and in the very southern tip is a very famous lighthouse. Right. And really, realistically, the only way you can, there's two ways you can get there. Um, the easiest way to get there is by boat. You just basically sail around. Okay. Um, or you can try and traverse this mountain range um, that's it's like, like massively high peaks, very steep mountains, but it's all basically rubble dirt tracks. Right. And, but I didn't know that. And so one day we thought, oh, well, you know, this looks like a great lighthouse. We must go and you know photograph that. And uh, and I thought, oh well, you know, I'll hire a car and we'll go down there. And <laughs> oh, no. usually, you know, the road system in Puerto Ventura generally is actually really good. I mean, the, the main roads are like brand new, you know, perfect. And me being a bit of a cheapskate, you know, I went and I hired the smallest car that I could find because I thought, <laughs> I mean, why should I spend money? I was just, you know, I was just gonna hop in a car, drive down there to this lighthouse, you know, and go back, have a nice day out, and that's it, you know. So um, I hired this, I don't even know what it was. It was like a, like a Fiat Panda, which is like a tiny, tiny little thing. This sounds no, a horrible car. <laughs> I know, it's horrendous. It's like, uh, you know, it's like, it's smaller than like a VW Beetle. You know, it's like, it's a tiny oh, little car. Gosh. No aircon in it. And I thought, ah, that'll do, you know. And, and it, we got in the car, we picked the car up, got in the car, and it was a big sticker on the dash saying, um, do not go off-road. And I'm thinking, <laughs> why would I go off-road in this car? Like, why, why, would I, why would I want to go off-road? This doesn't make any sense. Totally. Yeah, what do they know that we don't know? Exactly. So, you know, but I didn't really, I don't know, didn't think any more of it. And we started driving. And then, you know, then there was a sign saying, I can't remember what the name of the lighthouse was, but basically pointed in the, in, into the direction of that area. Yeah. And it was basically a dirt track that came off of the, the main highway. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I mean, it does say don't go off road, but you know, surely it can't be that bad. Anyway, this is like a, I think it's a front wheel drive little car. Oh, gee. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and then and so we head onto this this dirt track, and it keeps going, and then it keeps the inclines getting steeper and steeper, and it keeps winding its way up into what seemed like hills at the time. 
And then it gets steeper and steeper. And all of a sudden I can see the mountain range and it was freaking like Mordor, you know, it was oh, no. <laughs> horrendous, you know, and then, and then I kind of thought, well, you know, again, I mean, clearly there's like, you know, there's a road, so it can't be that bad. Anyway, we kept going. And um, then we kept seeing these cars coming the other way and they're all like four by fours. Yeah. You know, like all terrain. That's vehicles. a sign right there. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> for some reason, I thought, well, we'll just carry on in a little while. And then we got to this point where literally there's a dirt track, there's no barrier or anything, and then there's like a hundred meter drop, right? Oh, like no. a sheer steep drop. And I'm like, dang, there's no turning around here. There's literally no turning around. There's nowhere to turn uh... around. It's like a single track, dirt track with a hundred meter drop on one side and a massively steep mountain on the other. And it's like, we're going to have to keep going. And it got to this oh, point, it was horrendous, man. And it, it got to the point where the car was almost not making it, you know, it was getting too steep for this little car to go. It's just like, and you know, I was like praying. I was like, man, please, please let me get to the, to the top or something, you know? Yeah. And, it, and then eventually, I mean, it took hours, hours and hours. And my girlfriend at the time was going nuts. Like, cause she was looking down this, this massive yeah, I mean, drop. I, I get that. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Um, but then eventually we got to the top of the, you know, of this, this mountain. And from there, you could, I mean, it's the most beautiful vista and you could see the coast and the sea and, you know, and, and the lighthouse in the far distance, far, far distance. Um, you know, and then I was, I turned around and I looked down and I'm like, I don't want to go down this. I don't want to go down. I don't want to go down this dirt track. We're gonna to have to keep going. This is it. You know, we're gonna to have to keep going. And uh, and then I was this this like I was like a crossroad. I, I looked to my right, and there's the same dirt track, basically weaseling its way around on the side of this mountain with again like you know a hundred meter drop on one side, no barriers, nothing, and it was just going all the way along the mountain. It's like a massive mountain range. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I don't know, but I'm not going down this road. So we have no choice. You know, we can't turn back. We're going to have to keep going. And so that's what we did. And, you know, eventually, I mean, this took like a whole day, you know, and it yeah. really wasn't, in terms of distance, as the crow flies, it really wasn't actually that far, but it took us a whole day to get there. And then we spent, we spent as much time at this, at this lighthouse as we possibly could because we really didn't want to oh, go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because the bad part of that is you got to go do that all over again. Yeah, and I remember, you know, I mean, we eventually got back to the hotel and uh, my my parents have been to the same hotel um, several times before. And so, and this, uh, yeah, I remember the only reason why we went on this trip was because my parents had been there actually a few weeks before my, my ex-girlfriend and me got there. And they'd left a letter at the, um, or a card at the hotel and with a mystical message saying, you have to check uh. out this, this lighthouse. Um, and so... And that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's why we went on this trip in the, in the first place. And then we got back and I called my mom and I'm like, you know, wow, we've just, we just made it back, you know, from this, from this town. She goes like, oh, how was it? And I was like, well, it was horrendous. That was a, that was a trip <laughs> from hell. And she goes like, why really? I mean, you did hire a four by four, right? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody told Salt me. Salt in the wound. You, know, you said, take that road. And <laughs> that was it. I did. And so, oh. you know. Oh, well, fun, fun fact is, is so you've like worked my anxiety up as you've told that story. Yeah. I can sit on a volcano. I can sit in front of a tornado, but you put me on a cliff. That's game over. <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. 
I, I would have been walking that whole road while somebody else was driving. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, we, we drove, um, my, my wife and I actually, we drove yeah. from, we went all the way, we drove all the way from uh, Vancouver, or no, from Seattle to San Francisco. And so the way we did it uh, was that we wanted to hit as many states as we could. And so we basically went through Washington State and into Idaho and Boise, um, and then uh, somehow basically went on to Yosemite. Um, so we went over, and I forget the name of the pass. Something like Taruga Pass or something like that. Tioga, uh, Tioga yeah, yeah. Pass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Super high. My wife started suffering from altitude sickness. Oh no! <laughs> as we got up the top, and it was like, man. And then we, you know, I remember like coming, coming down the other way, like looking down some of the some of the the, the cliff sides when you when you get into Yosemite that way. Yeah. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> that just <laughs> yeah. reminded me of that Canary yeah. Islands trip. Yep, man. Gra- gravity is a fun, fun thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you always feel like, because you're so close to the edge, you always feel like, oh man, this is like one step, <laughs> you know, one step too far oh, yeah. and that's game over. Um, yeah. Yep. The one thing that I find super fascinating when I watch, you know, what you do is, is that, you know, I, I really always wonder when you are in these extreme situations like you know again like in a tornado or like there's lava you know flowing around your feet and like you know volcanoes erupting how do you keep how do you stay focused on taking the pictures and doing what you do carefully um no so you know something that kind of goes back from like the film days is when i'm out on something that's that's pretty significant so an eruption right for example uh, I, I storyboard everything out before I even get there. Uh, and that storyboard may be something as simple as just making a notes list on my phone of like ideas for shots. Or sometimes even I will go and I'll get like little three by five note cards and I'll very poorly because they can't draw, um, sketch out an idea for shots and what I want. And so I have these storyboards in my mind. And I have these, they're all, they're, they're not just like, oh, here's a pretty picture. Like something uh, that I'll do is kind of create, obviously it's called storyboarding. So I'll create a story, right? Of what I would like to capture to tell the story in which I would like to tell for that, that, that event. And so having that, just whether I keep that on my phone or I keep the note cards in my pack, or I just do it on the airplane over there just to kind of get the gears turning, that helps me when I'm out there because my head's always on a swivel for safety, right? So, you know, for example, with eruptions, I'm trying to think about, okay, what's the weather doing? What's the wind doing? What, uh, what are the gas? Am I dealing with any gases here? Am I dealing with projectiles? What's the visibility? What's my escape route? You know, how am I feeling? Like all these different things. And then it's like, okay, now I have to create a photo or with storms. It's okay. What are my road options? What's my escape route? What's visibility like? Um, how many other cars are out here? Because am I going to run into any sort of traffic issues, which, believe it or not, is a thing. Um, you know, what? where is the storm now? Where is the storm moving to? What kind of environment is the storm moving into? What is that storm going to do when it moves into that environment? Okay, now I have to take a photo. So there's a lot going on. So having a little bit of a storyboard or a shot sheet that always helps me when I'm out there going, okay, this is the shot that I want to get. This is happening right now. I pre-envisioned this. Okay, this is how I'm going to get it. Um, and then sometimes it's pure chaos. <laughs> so it's, uh, 
Yeah, most of the time I try to have a storyboard. Like when I documented the Leilani Estates eruption in 2018 Kilauea, um, I had everything that um, kind of shot sheeted out. And then that whole thing just completely crashed and burned because my initial goals for that, for example, were to get out there and to document um, the efforts to evacuate Leilani Estates. But when I got there, Leilani Estates, everybody pieced out for the most part. So it was very hard to find anybody trying to evacuate. So then it transformed into the story of showing the beauty of the eruption from the land, from the sea, from the air. And uh, yeah, so everything I had storyboarded then went out the window. And I remember sitting in the hotel one night, just kind of writing down ideas on how I could kind of turn this into a different story because my original story went out the window. So yeah, it's, it's, it's having a vision of, of kind of what you want to create but also being willing to adapt because once again, you're not in control. So that's one thing I read on your website um, where you were talking about the scariest moment that you've, that you've had shooting, which um, and you said nearly falling into a frozen lake in Alberta, Canada mm-hmm. uh, in minus 17 degrees Fahrenheit uh, with no way to, to get help. It's a long story. So ask me over a cup of coffee. Just happy to be here. Well, I don't have coffee, but I have water. But I really love I've to got hear a that cup story. of coffee, <laughs> and I just I just realized that I grabbed my my girlfriend's love is love heart mug. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Cheers! Um, Cheers! Yeah. So now that story, um, not my finest moment. You know, uh, we all we all. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. There we go. Sorry. Um, so again, yeah, we all we all learn throughout the years, right? And there's a lot of stuff that. You know, you, we all reflect back on, you know, a sketchy road and a front wheel drive car, you know, uh, it's all stuff that we look back on and we go, wow, that was dumb. Uh, this was my dumb moment. Um, but at the time, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with just being naive to where I was. So uh, I was up in Banff, Alberta, Canada, uh, Banff National Park. Uh, I was there with a good buddy of mine and he and I, we were wanting to go out and photograph uh, these methane bubbles that get caught up in the ice um, when the lakes start to freeze and they make for a really cool foreground. Well, there's a lake up there. It's called Abraham Lake that is notorious for that, but that hadn't frozen over yet. Um, So we were looking around for other lakes that possibly were freezing over, frozen over. And uh, we came across Bow Lake, which is up on Icefields Parkway. It's in between kind of Lake Louise and Jasper. I know. So yeah, Yeah. that's the lake. I have a love hate with it. Um, so it was all open water and both of us, you know, being from the South, we knew nothing about ice safety. Right. Uh, so it was open water on the first day we got there. And I think on the third day it had frozen over. And so, you know, we, we, we go there and we go there for sunrise. And our initial goal was to just shoot boat lake for sunrise, but we saw the whole thing was frozen and, you know, we get out of the car. It was minus, I think it was minus 14 Fahrenheit. Um, so really, really cold. Um, we get out of the car and, you know, it's got that fresh lake, you know, sound. It's the bing, bong, bong, you know, and it's like all these like Star Wars sounds, right? And uh, we get out and I'm like, okay. And he, he's, my buddy is the very, very cautious one out of the two of us. And I'm like, let's go. And so we, we noticed there's one guy out on the ice already. And it's kind of like twilight light. And he's, he's about 80 feet out or so. And so I'm walking out there and I'm like, this doesn't sound safe. <laughs> like everything in my body right now is telling me this is not a good idea. And I didn't even have micro spikes. I had no like 
crampons, nothing. I'm just walking bare, bare shoe or bare boot out there, and I'm sliding around. And so I go up to this guy, and I was like, hey, where are you from? <laughs> you know? And he's like, oh, I'm from Lake Louise. I was like, cool, you're Canadian. Is this safe? And he kind of laughed, and he's like, ah. And I was like, okay, that's not very convincing. I was like, I'm from Texas. What should I be on the lookout for? And the ice was the ice was so crystal clear that you could see all the cracks in it, and you can see kind of get an idea of like the thickness of the ice. And he's like, "Well, anywhere that's that's really more than three inches is probably safe." And I was like, "Okay, cool, thanks. I'll let you get back to shooting." I was like, "By the way, um, have you ever fallen through the ice?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, I fell I fell through the ice once on Lake Louise, and uh, my pack got caught on the ice, and I was able to pull myself out." I was like, "Oh, okay, cool. All right, I'll let you get back to shooting." So I'm like looking everywhere where I'm walking and I'm like, okay, that's three inches, that's four inches. Okay. That's death over there. Like that's safe over there. And so I finally come across and I find the bubbles and I kneel down and I start shooting. Well, when I got done with my shot, I made a big mistake. I stood up and instead of stepping the way in which I came, I stepped another direction, not paying attention. And, and the ice just spider webbed out from underneath me. And I didn't go through. It just spider webbed out probably solid three four feet in every direction so i'm standing there and i you know i said some words i won't repeat on the podcast and you know my buddy who was the smart one was only about you know 20 feet offshore and uh i'm standing there and i'm like what do i do and you know i'm yelling to to my buddy and he's like just walk and i was like that's easy for you to say right now like my my legs are literally trembling so I, I did what any good friend would do, and I took the car keys out, and I threw them the car keys. And I was like, save yourself, you know? Um, well, when I went to move, I, like, I got to the point where I was like, I need to do something. I can't just stand here. So I, I took another step, and then the whole sheet of ice just kind of broke off in like this pancake kind of thing and started slowly going down. And I let out another word. And uh, the other guy, the, the local guy, heard me, and he kind of rushed over to me. He's like, oh, you have yourself in a predicament. And I was like, absolutely. I'm like literally kind of floating on this piece of ice. And this ice is slowly, the more I'm moving, the more it's going down. And he goes, I want you to do what I tell you to do. He goes, take off your pack and throw it to me. So I take off my pack and I, I throw it to him. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, didn't you just say your pack saved you? <laughs> and I'm like, well, here you go. So I throw, throw my pack. And I'm starting to kind of like, sometimes I get bad anxiety. So I'm like starting to like trying to calm myself down because I feel it coming in. And I'm thinking, like, if I go in this water, like, there's no way I'm going to be able to swim with all the winter gear I have on. My No one's going to find me. I'm over, like, 100 feet of water. Like, no one's going to find me. Like, what are my parents going to think? So I'm starting to get upset. And so he's like, kneel down. And I'm like, no, I'm not. There's no way I'm kneeling down. He's like, kneel down and spread out your arms. And I'm thinking to myself, why would I do that? Oh, and he's getting me to spread out my weight, right? And so I kneel down and it's so cold and the water's coming up and like lapping over that it's like Velcro because it's almost like instantly freezing my gloves to the ice. And so then he goes, I already took my pack off and he goes, hand me your tripod. So I reach over and he's on all fours as well. And he's, you know, a decent ways away to the point where I'm putting the tripod on the ice and like sliding it to him. And then he goes, all right, I want you to, to, crawl this way, crawl that way. And so he kind of got me to a point where I could finally reach his hands. Um, and then he pulled me up onto the other piece of ice. And at that point, like I'm soaked from like the waist down and, uh, he grabbed me and I remember him like almost pulling me and like slingshotting me across the ice. And, uh, then he got me back to, to the car and warmed up and all that stuff. And 
And I remember being like, I am not going back on that ice. <laughs> like that, that is terrifying. Cause if he wasn't there, I probably would have just tried to walk away and would have went straight in. Um, and that would have been, you know, a really bad situation. You're, you're in a place with no cell phone service. It's, you know, sub-zero temperatures. We had no ropes, uh, you know, a lot of weight with the camera, camera bag, winter clothes, all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, so that was, that was a pretty terrifying moment because, uh, yeah, you know, if he wasn't there, like that would have just, I, I, my naiveness would have made so many mistakes would have probably resulted in, in something really, really bad. But, um, but now the funny part is that, um, to that story is, uh, afterwards I took a, a photo of him. Like we had a brilliant sunrise while all this was happening. And he went, he went back right down to the ice once he got me the car and made sure I was good. And so I took a photo of him kneeling down on the ice and it's got this really beautiful sunrise behind. So he, uh, he comes back to his car, I don't know, half hour later-ish. And uh, I was like, hey, what's your email address? I'll send you this photo I got. And so I got his email address. And uh, when I got back home, I sent him the photo. And I also sent him like a $50 Starbucks gift card. I was just like, thanks, man. Go get yourself warm coffee. And then it was, it was so funny, though, because this is, once again, my naiveness with Canada at the time. Uh, he, he wrote back to me. He's like... Uh, I appreciate the, the photo and I appreciate the gift card, but you're going to have to use it because there's no Starbucks anywhere up here. It's all Tim Hortons. I was like, oh man, well, I'll get you a Tim Hortons gift card. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. But that was, that was, that was, that was one of those moments that like my mom ironically has a, that print hanging up in her house that I took. And every time I see it, I just kind of like shiver a little bit. Cause I'm just like, God, I like it. The, the, like once again the naiveness like you know if you're going to go out on ice that's freshly frozen ice at least have micro spikes at least have a rope with you and you know i i just stupidly wasn't paying attention when i walked away of like how thick the ice was and yeah lesson learned so i, I bet i made you rethink sort of future like uh, you know expeditions almost and, and uh, your safety procedures and stuff like that yeah, you know, anytime I'm on ice now, like I, I won't go on it unless I'm sampling it and getting an idea of, hey, you know, it's at least five, six inches thick. It's, you know, not, this wasn't open water three days ago, um, you know, and I do bring rope with me now just in case. So I have my rope, my pack. Um, yeah, it definitely made me take a step back and, and realize, like I said, you know, we, we look back on things we did, we did you know, when we were younger or more naive and you go, wow, that was dumb. And, and definitely a lot was learned from that experience. What advice would you give um, to like fellow photographers who are sort of aspiring to venture out into those extreme conditions? Yeah. Um, I mean, one, don't be afraid to, but also do it with a, a mentor, do it with a guide, um, educate yourself, whatever it may be. Um, you know, go out with somebody who has years of experience doing whatever it may be, whether it's going out on frozen lakes or going out to lava flows, uh, stuff like that. Because there's a lot of stuff that is out there that you may think is what is harmful to you or, or dangerous to you, when really there's XYZ other things that are even more dangerous. Now, for example, with lava, you know, the very first time I went out uh, to go photograph lava on Kilauea, uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine who has had year decades of experience with Kilauea. And I was like, man, I really don't want to step on lava. And he's like, 
there's no way you're going to step on lava. Like literally you cannot get close enough to step on lava accidentally. And uh, he's like, what you do have to worry about is sulfur dioxide gases. You have to worry about collapsed lava tubes. You have to worry about this and this and this. And I was like, I never had any idea that was even part of this. Um, and so when I saw lava for the first time, I was like, 100%, I completely agree. There's no way you can accidentally step on this. It's so hot that you can't even, like you would have to purposely run into it. So for anybody that wants to get into the, you know, anything that's on the more extreme or dangerous side of things is definitely go with guides, pay the money to go with a guide. Somebody has got experience, you know, don't go just on a whim. Uh, you know, a lot of this stuff, it may look photogenic and it is, and it may look pretty and it is, but it's also got a lot of hazards with it that if you don't know about it, it's, it's what could get you in trouble. And that's something that we're seeing more and more with actually Tornado Alley stuff is uh, storm chasing has grown in popularity over social media in the past few years dramatically. And you're getting a lot of people out there who just follow other chasers or just pull up a radar app and they just start going to storms. They don't understand the hazards involved. They don't understand how to read the storms. They don't understand how to anticipate how a storm may uh, change dynamically as it moves from one environment to another. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, hey, let me just look out for a tornado. Well, yeah, you've got tornadoes, but you also have tornadoes wrapped in rain, which are kind of almost invincible in a way. You've got softball-sized hail, you've got flash flooding, you've got, you know, straight-line winds, you've got lightning strikes, you've got, you know, all these different other hazards that, you know, people don't think about. And uh, it's starting to create a little bit more chaos out there. Um, people are getting injured. People are getting hit by tornadoes. Uh, there's traffic jams because people don't know how to properly approach or escape from a storm. Uh, so yeah, go out there with somebody who has an experience, has experience, grow, learn the ropes. It's going to take time. It's not just going to be one and done. You know, it's going to take a couple of years of getting that experience and study as much as you can, and then go out, kind of dip your toes, get them wet, and uh, and learn from that or learn from that um, that experience. Don't watch storm chasing programs on TV or on social media. Oh. And then <laughs> I always it's find it cool crazy. Yeah. I find it but, crazy. It's like um it's a little bit like you know that recent um unfortunate event uh with the the sub that went down to the Titanic yeah. and, and imploded. And so you know when you think about it, you kind of think like, well, that is probably the most extreme environment other than space, you know, that we can find ourselves in on this planet. And there's a dude with a home, basically a homemade, I'll say homemade, you know, like a self-built sub taking yeah. tourist trips down to the Titanic, like 4,000 meters below. Yeah. I mean, that in itself just sounds so far out that it's just incredulous, you know? Yeah, you know, it, it, that whole situation, man, we, we followed that closely. I was out with a private workshop student last week while that whole thing was going on. We were just talking about, like, do your research how how what in all of that not not to judge but what in all of that sounded like a good idea and now the more we look into it you're starting to see more and more interviews with the ceo where he's talking about skipping safety things and how this part was bought at a hardware store and it's like 
Yeah. So anybody you go out with for anything, do your research on them too and their companies. Make sure that you're understanding their experience level. Talk to them on the phone, ask questions, not just sign up for, you know, Bill and Joe's wild tornado adventure, you know, and go out with somebody who, you know, has no experience, but stayed at a holiday Inn once, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's do you do your homework a little bit too on, on, on that kind of stuff. And of course, for those people interested, um, I think it can, you know, I can easily say there's probably no better guide than, than yourself. And of course you do run workshops in some of these places like tornado alley, for example. Yeah, I do. I do tornado alley photo tours. Then there's some, some other ones out there too, that are great. And like, I'm not saying they're, they're good tours. There are not so good tours, um, but there are some very talented um, photographers and atmospheric science out there, scientists out there that do run tours. But um, yeah, for what I run, it's, it's not a thrill-seeking kind of tour for me. It's uh, a, hey, here's how to photograph these storms kind of tour. So we may not be up close and personal with a, a tornado, for example, but yet we may be several miles back finding a windmill with composition and the tornado and you know the storm above. Uh, so I focus when I take people out there, I take them out on, you know, the goal is to create a beautiful composition with the storm. Whether it's the most intense part of the storm or not, that's we'll see. We'll see what what we can work with, but it's more about creating a piece of art and something that's storytelling uh, with the storm rather than, you know, some of the tours are more adrenaline based and thrill seeking based, where they take them in and they smash out the windshields with baseball sized hail, and you know everybody films it on their iPhone. That's that's not what we're about. So, <laughs> fantastic, yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. Where can people find your workshops? Yeah, so I have my website. It's mikemezphotography.com. Uh, there's workshops for 2023, which they're all sold out right now. Um, 2024 workshops are are open, and there's some spots left for some of the workshops there. Uh, 2025 workshops. It's crazy to even say 2025. Like I feel like I feel like Back to the Future should be a thing by now. Um, but yeah, 2025 workshops, they'll come out towards the end of this year, but, uh, the storm chasing workshops, they do fill up very fast. Like the, those, those workshops sell out within minutes. So, uh, if you want to kind of find out more about my work, what I'm up to workshops, you can sign up for the newsletter on the website. And that's like the best way to, to get first dibs on any of the workshops. And if you are listening to the audio version, or in fact, if you listen, if you're watching this on YouTube, then you'll find all of the, the links down in the description so make sure you check that out um mike it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show it's so fascinating talking to you about the stuff that you do um i'm sure i mean i've had a whale of a time listening to that i'm sure you know our listeners i would agree thank you so much for being on the show today yeah dude thanks for having me man and anytime you want to nerd out let's let's chat it up so uh yeah, I could talk all day. I know we'll we'll run out of Zoom recording space here soon, but uh, I appreciate the opportunity, man, to come along and hang out with you. Okay, folks, that's all for today. I'm quivering in my boots just thinking about volcanoes erupting. But before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you like. Check out episode 143, where we're discussing photographing the magic of the Lofoten Islands with Dave Williams. I'm sure you love it. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, did you know that there's a fully fledged video version over on YouTube with plenty of examples of our guest photography in full Technicolor? All you have to do is go over to YouTube, search for Camera Shake Podcast, and you'll be able to watch all past episodes 
on there. And if you are on YouTube already, well, get in touch and leave a comment and remember to hit that like button, ring the bell and share with your friends. You can help us reach a greater audience all over the world. Once again, thank you for listening and watching and I'll see you again next Thursday. Bye.